0: In your Bibles, we are in uh, the book of 1 John, if you'll turn there, and we'll get prepared to open up the Word of God and, and hear what He has to tell us tonight. Um, and so what I want to do is go ahead and um, read out our passage of Scripture for tonight, 1 John chapter 4, um, verses 7 through 11, and then I want to pray before we get started um, and also Uh, pray for the situation that matt was talking about With this fire around us it's really close it's affecting a lot of people Um, and so we'll just pray and ask god to um, to care for his people in this and that his name would be glorified uh, even in in uh, situations like this where there's great fear and uncertainty we want our god to be glorified in everything let's look at our passage of scripture first john chapter 4 And like I said, we're in verses 7 through 11, and you might recognize this as a very familiar camp song if you went to church camp as a kid. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come here this evening to open up your word, to hear what you have said, Lord, to participate in not only the reading, but the hearing of your word proclaimed. We ask God that you would teach us through your spirit, that you would lead us into all truth. Um, Father, that we would trust you, trust your word above everything else. We thank you for caring for your people by preserving your word. Uh, And Father, We also come to you this evening uh, in a situation where locally we have a major fire raging uh, that's affecting a lot of people in the Shastina area, the Weed area, Carrick, um, perhaps even threatening the Mount Shasta city area. And Father, we know that you are aware of all things, you are in control of all things, and I ask, Lord, that as your children, um, that as we can stand firm on a foundation of our salvation in Jesus Christ, um, and as we just sang about because he lives, Lord, we can face tomorrow. Um, I pray, Father, that we would lean on that, that we would rest in you, rest in the truth that even if our forest and buildings, houses, cars, even if things burn to the ground, Lord, you are still God, you are still on your throne We can still love you. It does not affect our salvation. It is eternally held by you. Um, It was not earned by us, Lord, but by the work of Christ in his sinless life and his death on the cross. I pray, Father, that we would focus on what is true and right and good about you, that we would be examples to the world around us, not of fear, Lord, but of uh, resting in you. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to endure whatever it is we must endure, whether it's merely smoke or whether it's a loss of property. Lord, we ask humbly that um, we would, you would be able to uh, spare our communities from the loss of life, uh, protect the firefighters, Lord, as they um, go out each day to try to get this fire under control. Uh, Father, we ask for that, if that be your will. But above everything, Lord, we want you to be glorified. Perhaps through this, Lord, that some may come to know you through their fear and through their conversation with a believer. They may come to know you as their Savior. That is an amazing thing that you do, Lord, in the midst of difficult situations and trials. So help us, Lord, to be tools in your hands or however you would use us. May we trust you with all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, Okay, well, it's been a couple weeks since we met. We had VBS last week, so uh, we did not have Wednesday night Bible study. The last two lessons that we had covered, we began in chapter four, and they covered the first six verses of chapter four. That was our last two lessons, Um, and uh, we got started into chapter four, and seeing Again, John's comparisons between Christianity and the world, between what is true, people that are truly of God and people that are not. Um, John said not to believe every spirit, but to test them. That's what we first saw when we started in chapter four, and remember that John was talking about the teachings or messages that we hear in this world, not floaty ghosts running around. We, you know, those aren't the spirits we're testing, right? This is the teachings. Okay, the teachings of men. Um, the question is, where do they come from? Okay, the teachings are verbalized through men, but they are from the Spirit of God or from the Spirit of the Antichrist, as John said. It's one or the other. Either someone is speaking the truth of the Word of God or they are speaking from themselves, speaking from the Spirit of Antichrist. Uh, and that was John's point there, that we don't just believe everything that's said Um, And, again, not that you have to go around doubting everyone either. Uh, That would be kind of miserable to have to come to church and doubt everything that the pastor says from the pulpit. uh, That's not how we want to go about things, but we do want to take what's said and compare it to the Word of God. That's how we know um, what is true or not. Uh, John identified those that teach in accordance with the spirit of Antichrist as false prophets. And he said, even back then, um, when he was writing this letter to the church back then, he was saying that many of them, false prophets, have already gone out into the world. So even way back then, they're already dealing with these false teachers, false prophets. What is a prophet, though? In the Bible, a prophet is someone who speaks forth the truth, the words of God as given and commanded by God. These are not their own words. Hence, um, this, this word would be according to the Spirit of God. If someone spoke and claimed they were speaking the truth from God, but they were not, they were speaking on behalf of the Spirit of Antichrist. Hence, he's a false prophet. Okay? He's not the real thing. Uh, a prophet could be speaking the word of God as, as God gave it to them about something that was happening right then. Or a prophet could have been speaking forth the word of God about some future event. Um, so in a sense, even a preacher preaching the word of God is prophesying when we look at prophecy that way. Prophecy is not always someone telling a future event. Okay, that's, We need to clear that up. However, that is usually what we think of it as. When, when someone says someone's a prophet or something like that, we usually think, Oh, they—they they can tell the future. The Bible calls it sometimes calls them a seer. Um, why would someone—and uh, if you're new here, we sometimes we ask questions from here, and it's kind of open for everybody to answer. Um, why would someone even want to claim to speak for God today? What are some of the reasons someone today would want to claim to be a prophet of God? Because what? Okay, because they would profit—the different spelling of profit, right? Yeah, they would get something, perhaps monetary, out of it, right? What else? Attention. There you go. Okay. Any other reasons you can think of? Control. That's a good. That's a really good point. Yeah, control. Especially in the world right now. That's right. There we see a lot of this. Um, the notoriety they might get from it, the attention, the money. Um, and, and the attention that we're talking about is positive attention. Let's keep that in mind for what we're going to look at here in a minute. That's what they want. They want positive attention, right? Um, it could be someone might want to speak for God today or claim to speak for God today because they have a genuine but false belief that they're truly speaking on God's behalf. It's not always necessarily that they have bad motives. They might genuinely be deceived into thinking they're speaking for God. Um, Monetary gain was already mentioned, um, and some of the reasons why people want to claim today to speak for God are that uh, they're not believing God about the punishment awaiting false prophets. Right? They, they just don't believe what the Word of God says. They don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, maybe they're delusional. But why did the biblical prophets do it? Why were they prophets? God gave them His Word. He commanded them to speak his word to the people, right? Not for notoriety, not for gain of any kind, um, always, pretty much always being despised for it, right? They, they didn't get positive notoriety. Uh, they're not admired. They were not looked up to. In fact, most of them were killed because of what they said. Okay, they, they were a tool in God's hands to bring the truth to the people. It wasn't something that they uh, that was desired like today, like it's um, you know some party favor or something. If you want to turn with me to Ezekiel, I want to look just real quick. This is, again, just a recap of where we've been and what we've been talking about. But in Ezekiel chapter two, just to get our minds wrapped around this, I want to look at um, the call of Ezekiel as a prophet. What did that look like? Ezekiel chapter two, and then we're going to go to Jeremiah and look at his real quick. Um, but this is important for what John has been talking about, about testing the spirits and not believing everything, that there are false prophets out there. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, then he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. It doesn't sound like the calling that somebody's going to go, yeah, sign me up, (laughs) you know, send me. You know, God is sending them to a rebellious house and the message that he has for them is you are rebels against God. Not, hey, uh, I get this vision that you're going to be coming into some money soon you know, if you send me some money uh, or something like that. Okay? It, it, the, the biblical prophets and what we see there is nothing resembling what we see today and what people claim today. The same Jeremiah 1, uh, 4 through 8 Says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. Now, these are not the ministries of men who are loved and respected and sought after uh, for the true words of God. These are not men that needed to be either needed to be taught prophecy, okay, by going to some supposed school of prophecy. Okay. They they're not giving good news to the people of some vague movement of God that's coming. They're speaking for god calling people to account for their rebellion against god and there's no money exchanging hands and the people killed the prophets okay you'll not hear that from today's supposed prophets because they tell you what you want to hear they're not they don't fear their lives being taken from them by the people killing them because they never tell the people anything bad hey okay? they're they're only telling them what they want to hear and today, everybody and his brother is claiming to be and wanting to be a prophet of God. There are schools devoted to teaching people to be prophets. And we have one right down, down the highway in Reading uh, called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Okay, and they supposedly teach you how to be a prophet or be a healer. Um, of course, they charge people thousands of dollars to learn how to be and what to do that only God truly can do for someone. Only God calls someone to be a prophet. Um, If you look at their course syllabus uh, for the prophetic ministry, um, it's called Prophetic Ministry in the Life of the Church. And Chris Vallotton is the instructor. He's the head prophet down there. Uh, And it says in the syllabus, This course is designed to give students an overview of the purpose of prophetic ministry, a historical understanding of prophetic ministry in the Bible, the characteristics and creation of a healthy prophetic culture, and practical training in operating in the spiritual gift of prophecy. Well, where was that for Jeremiah? Where was that for Ezekiel? They didn't have that. They didn't need that. God said, you are going to do this. I am putting my words in your mouth, and you will do this. Um, Also on the syllabus, uh, they they have recommended reading uh, by Chris Volodson, basic training for the prophetic ministry. Uh, Another book, User-Friendly Prophecy. That just doesn't seem to go with biblical prophecy that we know about. Uh, another one called "Translating God," hearing God's voice for yourself and the world around you, and then another one called "Basic Training for Prophetic Activation: Sounds of the Nations." Okay, none of this is biblical, um, but they're making these claims. And John is saying in our in chapter four here, "Stop believing all this stuff. Test it with the Word of God, whether it is true." There's no accountability today for for these false prophecies in the church. Um, There will be, absolutely. Um, And perhaps the fact that it's delayed makes them think, oh, nothing will happen, right? Um, But prophet after prophet after prophet, dozens of them this last election predicted that Trump would win a second term. And I'm not getting political here. I'm just telling you, this is what they were predicting, that he would win a second term without a doubt, dozens of them. Um, well, Trump's not president, okay? Uh, do you think they care or, or tell people, hey, maybe you should stop listening to me. I, I didn't get it right. No. They continue with their false prophecies, and everything they say is not from God ever. Yet, it's scary. Yet thousands of people follow these these false prophets today. And they make excuses for their false prophecies. Chris Vallotton, the head prophet down at Bethel, um, was one of those... Prophets that prophesied Trump would win. He was adamant about it. Well, then he had to issue an apology. And here's his apology. I take full responsibility for being wrong. There's no excuse for it. Good so far. I think it doesn't make me a false prophet, (laughs) but it does create a credibility gap. Well, that's convenient. A lot of people trust me, trust my ministry, and I want to say I'm very sorry for everyone who put their trust in me. He says, "I don't think it makes me a false prophet." Well, then I'm not sure what does. Right? Well, let's see how his thoughts about whether he's a false prophet stack up against the written word of God. Deuteronomy 18:20 20 through 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, "How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken?" When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. If, if Chris Voliton knew the scriptures, then he would know that. But they make excuses so that they can continue to give false prophecies and not be held accountable. But like you said, they will be. Our, our goal, according to John, is to stop believing everything like this and to test, test it with the Word of God. So we saw in the last few weeks that these people are not from the Lord. They have the spirit of error and not of truth. They have the spirit of Antichrist and not the spirit of God. We also learned that those who listen to them are not from God. Those that are from God, true Christians, will listen to the Word of God alone. Now that doesn't mean that we never... Uh, believe something temporarily that's wrong and then we get corrected and we come around to believing the truth. This is talking about a persistent belief in what is false. Okay, Those people prove to not be from God. So many young children. That's right. And they're being drawn in mainly by the music. Okay. Yeah. They at least believe they love God. Right? But they, they believe they love God because they've been told this is how you love God, by doing all these things. Um, but they can claim all they want, that they love God. And by God's grace, he saves people out of that ministry. I've read several testimonies of people that have been saved out of that because the true gospel was presented to them from some outside source, and they, they left or either got kicked out because they tried to share the, gospel, the true gospel there, and they kicked them out. Um, But it's so dangerous, very dangerous. A teaching place like what? Do we, as in our church, uh, to go and take coursework in the actual truth? Um, hmm. I don't know. I can't think of a place for children that they could go and actually take coursework in the truth and be truly taught the Word of God. I'm not sure. There, other than, yeah. So it depends on what you meant by children, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is a probably their biggest demographic. I um, mean, like Charity said, um, you know, un- Christian universities, solid Christian universities, are the place where kids our kids can go and be trained in the truth. As far as little kids, I don't know, other than a camp somewhere or something like that. Not many people want to just send their little kid off to something, but Christian universities are a good source of the truth. Um, But something like that, I can't think of anything like Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry or anything like that. Um, I mean, the fact is they're trying to teach people to have and use gifts of the Spirit, but... They're gifts of the spirit, not gifts of the school, supernatural ministry. Um, God gives those gifts. You can't go and learn that somewhere. Um, and that's where we, we go off track when we think that. It's very sad. Um, now John moves on to another yet familiar topic. Okay, after he's warned against believing all those things, he wants us to test the spirits, he comes back again to the topic of love, what love truly is and where it comes from. Um, and so, looking at our, at our first verse there, in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so, here in verse 7, on the topic of love, there, there are three things that we can see clearly given to us by the apostle. In this verse alone, we see a command, we see a reason to follow the command, and we see a conclusion that is proved. Okay, the command here is, let us love one another. Okay? This is not new. Uh, it just, looking at, just looking at this letter from John as we've gone through it, we've seen it a lot. Okay? In chapter 3, verse 10, he said, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And the next verse Uh, 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then 3.23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Okay, so this is not new from John. He's Revisiting what he's already talked about, but he's going to um, add to it here or, or reinforce it, you might say. Um, you can see that uh, this is a very clear command to Christians. This is what we're to do, to love one another. Okay, and then, then John gives us the reason to follow the command. Okay? He says the reason to follow this command is because Love is from God. Love one another because love is from God. This gives us the origins of love. Okay? What is the origin of love? It's with God himself. Who defines what love is? God does. Why does God get to define what love is? Well, we'll look at that in a moment, but let's get to the next point first. And we'll come back to that. Okay, the, the third thing is that the proven conclusion is whoever loves has been born of God and knows God again we see John making a distinction between those who truly are born of God and those who are not okay a true believer versus someone who says they're a believer but they're really not and we can know it we can come to that conclusion because he says whoever loves has been born of God and knows God again we have to go back to those previous verses uh, that we were just looking at. The same ones that tell us to love one another also say that uh, that very love is proof of salvation. Look back at, at one of those verses, for instance, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life, okay, that's being born again, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Okay, there's, there's proof there. When a person loves his brother in Christ, I can conclude that he's been born of God and knows God. That he has passed out of death into life, as John says. It is a proven conclusion. Well, let's go back to that second point, like I said I would. Love is from God. Yeah, I, I left the second point with the unanswered question of, why does God get to define what love is? Love is from him. Okay, according to that verse, if it's from him, he gets to define what it is. Uh, if you create something, I don't know, a board game or something like that, you get to tell people how to play it, right? You could lay all the pieces and everything out there before them and say, have at it. Well, if you don't tell them how to play it, they're not going to know. Okay? You get to define what it means to play that game. God created everything, and God is love Love is from God, he gets to decide what love is. Okay, love is from him. And the next verse gives us more on why he gets to define love. Okay, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, in, in addition to another conclusion, in that verse, this time on, the, on a negative side, anyone who does not love does not know God. There's a conclusion. We have the ultimate reason God gets to define love. and It is because God is love. Okay, love doesn't just come from God. It does. It doesn't just, just come from God. John says here God is love. He, his very essence is love. You could ask the question, what, what is God? You could ask that of someone. What is God? Well, the correct answer will always be God is love. It, to the answer to that question, what is God? God is love. Okay, but here's a question What are some problems we see with people saying that as the answer? Just that as the answer. What's the problem with saying God is love? It's true. But are are there problems with it if we leave it there? Okay, it doesn't show his active role in our lives. Sure. What else? Absolutely. Sometimes it's to the exclusion of God's justice, yeah. Okay? True, true. We have to show the love, right? Not just say it, but live it out. Um, One of the problems that we see with saying God is love, and our world likes to say that, right? Do you believe in God? Yeah. Why? Well, God is love, okay? Well, one of the problems with leaving it there is that people will feel free to continue in sin, If God is love, it's okay if I do this because God is love. But that's without saying anything else about any of his other attributes, right? Uh, People feel like there's no, therefore there's no hell. There's no need for hell because God is love. But that goes against what Scripture teaches. Okay? It allows people to ignore the equal truth that God is also omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is immutable, meaning he's unchanging. God is merciful. He desires to save sinners. God is gracious because we need it. And perhaps the attribute most forgotten is that 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 Larry mentioned, that God is just. This is seemingly in conflict with the fact that God is love, but it's not really in conflict. Yes, God is love, but he is also just which means sinners have a problem because of their sin. Sin must be punished, right? It doesn't just go away because God is love. We are sinners, but God is love, so eh, my sin's nothing. It, it's just out there, right? That's not how it works. The big problem with thinking God is only love is that people believe he is love, like Larry said, to the exclusion of his other attributes, namely that he is a God of justice, and this this artificially frees people from the penalty of sin. To believe that God is love and just leave it at that, it gives an, uh, an artificial message that sin is not that bad, okay? I don't have to pay for sin in any way. So, we said God gets to define love. Let's see how he does so. Not only is it true that God is love and that Love is from God, but John tells us how God proved it. Look at the next verse, 1 John 4 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Okay, what does it mean then, that that God's love was made manifest among us? What does that mean? That it was made manifest. Okay, he was made manifest in the fact that Christ came, came born of a virgin, being in human form, right? Yeah, it was, it was made obvious. It was made clear to men. They saw the love of God because it was made manifest in the birth of Christ, in the life of Christ here on earth. They understood the love of God. Okay. God displayed his love in a particular way. And John says that he did so among us. Okay, this is a clearer reference to the coming in the flesh of Jesus Christ, who John says here is the only Son of God sent into the world that we might live through him. This is so great. John is making all these statements about God and his love and where it comes from and what it looks like. Then he continues to explain it very clearly. When we talk about love, this should be the measuring rod. Okay, when someone asks you, as a Christian, what love is, John tells us what the response is. And there are no two ways about it. People can talk about their feelings all day long, okay, or about their emotions all day long, but nothing defines love greater than what John has just said about the Son of God coming to give life. There is no greater example or definition of love itself than that. So if someone asks you that question, what is love? That should be what's on our mind as Christians. We shouldn't have to think of some weird theory or something like that. I know as a Christian, because my sins have been forgiven through Christ, what the greatest act of love ever was, and it's God sending his son so that we might live through him. And he goes even further in his explanation, uh, in his example and definition of love, and look at what he says next in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yeah, this is so powerful, and I want you to think about using these verses. Again, the next time someone asks you, To define or explain what love is. John says, in this is love. In other words, he's saying, do you want to know what love truly is? It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. He says, in this. He's referring to an action. In this action. What action? He, verse 10, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Does anyone remember what that word propitiation means? We talked about it in chapter two several weeks ago. Propitiation. What's that? Comes to be? No? It's a word we don't really use a whole lot. Um, It's really, it's a word that's only used regarding Jesus and his work of redemption. Um, The word means appeasement or satisfaction. Okay, so that is what Christ is according to John. He is the appeasement or satisfaction for our sins. For our sins. In other words, he's the appeasement so that our sins can be forgiven. Well, what or who needs to be appeased? No. What or who needs to be appeased? needs to be appeased. God, yeah, God, right? Um, God is angry at sin every day, according to the Scriptures. Sin must be punished, and His wrath is what needs to be appeased. It needs to be satisfied. Okay, it's, it's not appeased by ignoring sin. Okay, like we talked about earlier, that sin doesn't just float away because God is love. Um, it's not appeased By excusing sin, just letting it go, it is only appeased by punishing sin. Sin must be punished. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It must be punished. But but isn't God love? Yes, God is love. And that's why Jesus came to be punished for you. Right? Sin had to be punished. That is the rule. That is how it has to be. But Jesus came, bearing the wrath of God for your sin. He appeased God. He appeased the wrath of God in your place. Jesus satisfied the requirements of the law in punishment. In other words, he was the propitiation. That's what John is talking about here. That, that one word encompasses a lot that Jesus did, right? Right? Along the lines of what John just said about God sending his son for this purpose, the author of Hebrews gives a little more insight into why Jesus had to come. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Okay, that's a reference to the coming of Christ. It's manifested in the flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to come in human form. He had to come and live a sinless life in order to take your place on the cross, to take my place on the cross. And look with me, if you would, in Romans chapter 3. Another example here. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And listen to what it says here regarding Jesus as our propitiation. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So we can see in there not only that God is love in sending Christ to be the propitiation, but that God is also just. He didn't just excuse sin. He punished it on his own son. As Jesus took all that on himself, he punished it. So he could be just. He could be a just judge, not a corrupt judge who just lets sin go. He's just because he still punished sin, but he's also the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Christ, the one who puts their faith in Christ as their propitiation. Well, what should be the Christian's response to this definition and manifestation of love? What should be the response from Christians? Absolutely, we should be glad that Jesus came for us. Anything else? We should continually be, be pointing, the, the knowledge of this continually points us back to praising God because of it, to giving him the glory because of it. And then, simply put, John gives an instruction in our last verse that the response is to love others in the same way. So John says in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, after giving this whole explanation of God, Love coming from God, that God is love. He says here, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Absolutely. When he says, if God so loved us, he means by the fact that God sent his only son while we were yet sinners, we are unlovable, we are filthy, rotten sinners, and he sent his son. That's what he means by, if God so loved us, if God loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. Is that not easy to understand? That's very easy to understand. There's a difference between understanding and putting it into practice, isn't it? Because not everybody is lovable, okay? As lovable as we are, right? <laughs> uh It's it's easy to understand. If if God loved us in that way, we should respond also by loving one another. Period. End of story. There's no excuse for not loving one another considering the immeasurable love God has shown to you and to me by sending His Son. We have no excuse. And I want to go back for a moment to, to, uh, to end this here to a part of verse 10 that we didn't really look at. Okay, verse 10. John, he explained more about the origins of love when he qualified God's love for us by making sure we understand it was not our idea. We didn't, we didn't think it up. We would not have thought it up. We did not decide one day to love God on our own. No, it was completely initiated by God. Look at what he says here in verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Again, love is from God. God is love. He initiated love love in the very act of putting forth his only son as the propitiation for our sins so why should we remember or why is it important for us to know then that true love is exhibited in the fact that god loved us and not the other way around why why is john making that point why is it important Right. Yeah, I might be able to then tell other people, you should love God like I love God. That's backwards, right? Uh, another reason why this is important for us to know as Christians is it keeps us from being prideful. To know that God loved me, God pursued me with the truth of the gospel, and he saved me. Yes, I responded in love, but God loved me. It keeps the focus on the word of Christ. It keeps the glory where it belongs on God and not me. It removes any instance where I can say, look at what I did. It's initiated by God. God did this. That's an amazing truth. All this is an amazing truth about the love of God that John is sharing here. And he's, again, encouraging these Christians in their faith in Christ and what what it means and what it has meant he's drawing their attention right back to the cross right back to what caused them to be saved in the first place it was through their faith in christ as their propitiation and it's the greatest act of love that there ever was and therefore our response is to love others as christ loved us okay yeah question Right, Right. does it tell us in the Bible how to go about loving the unlovable? Uh, I think so- something that pops into my head right away is um, Philippians chapter 2. It tells us to consider others as more important than ourselves. That's one way that we can begin to love others. <laughs> Again, all of these commands that God has given us to love are, are this word agape, which is a love of the will. It's a love of choice. Again, it's not a feeling or an emotion, it's I'm choosing to love this person, not based on their performance or something they do for me, but because God has commanded me to do it. Um, And so I think one of the ways we can begin to do that is by considering others as more important than ourselves, and that includes those that are not lovable. I, I hear what you're saying, and it's very important in those instances that not only do we consider others as more important than ourselves, but that we remember who we are and how Christ loved us. He, Christ didn't wait until I stopped being a jerk or until I treated everyone well uh, or that I was really lovable. He loved me, died for me, while I was in the midst of being this wretched sinner. And so when I look at another person, I think, oh, they're just so hard to love. They do this, they do that. While I'm going over that list of things, I have also just forgotten how terrible I am and how God loved me in spite of my terribleness. So therefore, I have to remind myself, I have no excuse to not love that person. They may not respond to the love I give them. They may even get more nasty. But that doesn't matter. Their response is not what's important. It's it's my response in love towards them as a worship to God, as a response to God's love for me. That's what's important. Well, it definitely does set an example, right? Um, when we love other people like that um, and treat people well like that, um, the scripture says it heaps burning coals on their head. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. You can probably search. There's lots of testimonies from people who were just mean, nasty people, and they were mean and nasty to a particular person who happened to be a Christian, and that person showed, continued to show love for them, and eventually they were so broken by this person's love for them and their example that through that, God used it to convict them of their sin and bring them to faith in Christ because of the Christian response from one of God's people, that was the the result. And that doesn't mean that that always happens or always will happen, but that's the beauty of it. Because if if we only did it because we knew it would go well, then we would treat other people poorly because we knew it wouldn't, you know, ultimately they weren't going to believe or something. So God doesn't give us that information. He just says, do it. Forgive others as I have forgiven you, he says. And how did he forgive me? Well, (laughs) by sending his son to die for me. Not because I lived by the law perfectly or something, but because I couldn't and I needed a savior and he sent Christ. That's how I need to love other people. And he never anywhere says it's easy. It is not easy. That's why God has to command it. Right? It doesn't come natural. So, Yeah. That's what John's after here. He wants them to not only understand love, where love comes from, and why, and how it was shown to them, but what their response is to that, which is, now go and love one another like this, like Christ has loved you. So let's close for tonight. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for um, the lesson for tonight, for this reminder first and foremost, about Christ as our propitiation, Lord. Help us, help that to sink in. That you, according to Paul in Romans, put forth your son. You offered him up as a propitiation, taking on your wrath because of sin in our place. Help that to sink in, Lord. Even as Christians who've who've responded to the gospel, I pray that it would just ring in our ears that we would know and be reminded continually of your great love for us, that it would motivate us, spur us on to love one another. Help us, Lord, with the difficult cases, to be faithful, to love, to consider others as more important than ourselves. And we thank you, Father, for those who you are teaching and sanctifying who have to put up with us as well. We thank you for their patience with us, their kindness towards us. Uh, may we respond to one another in Christian love, and growing more and more to be like Christ. We thank you and we praise you. We want you to receive all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.